Greetings and salutations. This is the Accelerated Culture Podcast, the rise of alternative music in the 80s and beyond. In this podcast, we aim to walk through an often ignored bit of music history. My co-host Trey and I will explore how new waves stormed the airwaves in the early 80s and gave way to the rise of alternative music. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Accelerated Culture Podcast. I'm Lori. And hey, I'm Trey. Hey, Trey. How's it going? It's going good. Yeah? Very excited for this episode. I think this is going to be a, a, I don't know, a banger. You have a big grin on your face right now. Yeah, I can tell you're very excited. I'm in a good mood today. Oh, good. I'm glad. Well, I am, uh, I'm on the mend. I'm recovering from COVID. Um, so if I sound a little hoarse, that, that's why. I'm pretty sure I picked it up at that Echo and the Bunnymen concert the other night. Oh, how was that, by the way? Oh, it was it was fantastic. You never said anything about it. You were like, I'm going. And then then you two days later, you were like, I got COVID. Yeah, that, that's exactly how long it took, too. Wednesday night was the concert. Friday night, I, I had the symptoms. But yeah, no, it was really, really good. And I was a little worried because I had been seeing some of the reviews and some of the Facebook groups where people were saying that Ian was kind of phoning it in and it wasn't really performing his best but uh i was not disappointed at all and i've seen them a few times it was it was really really good he sounded fantastic the whole band sounded fantastic but you know a lot of these guys we shows bands will go see these people are in their late 50s early 60s and they're you know i'm in my early 50s and i have a bad day every other day so i don't really fall from i mean you know this guy's he's he's probably putting his all into this just even being up there so I mean, he was sitting on a stool for most of the performance, but that's okay. I don't care because, I, I mean, he's not exactly known for his dance moves. Right. I, I, in a heck, if I was in a band and I could sit, I would do it too. All right. So, Trey, what are we talking about today? 1983. 1983. So I was nine years old, turned 10 in November of 83. And I would have, I turned 13 that April. Okay. And again, it was just another banner year for music. You know, not only was 83 a banner year for music, but music videos really went through the roof that year, which we may or may not discuss later in another episode. But this, this was an amazing year for me. And it was just, I can remember so much of it so clearly. And it's all due to the music that I was getting into over the course of the year. Well, I was also going to say that when Lori first approached me about doing this podcast, I had a, a thing I came up with and, you know, we were discussing how it's going to, you know, how we're going to do it. And I said, I'm only going to pick stuff that I heard in that year. And when it came time to, you know, start pick, picking my songs and stuff for this episode, I quickly realized that was a bad idea because I would basically be covering about the same 10 bands. So I had to branch out a little and pick some things that I didn't hear till later in the 80s, sort of against my will, but I, I feel like it was the right thing to do in order to, so it didn't get repetitive, basically. And I don't think anybody's going to hold that against you. I mean, it's not like they're going to get in their time machine and go back to 83 and try and verify whether or not you actually heard these songs in 83. Well, I was trying to, you know, I guess I thought I was, I don't know, some sort of journalistic 
truth there. I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking, but it, 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 it backfired on me. And I'm, you know, had to admit it. Okay. Well, so we're going to do like we did in our first episode. You and I each picked 10 songs from 1983 that we're going to play and we're going to talk about. So why don't you start us off, Trey? All right. Our number one song today is going to be Major Tom by Peter Schilling. The countdown starts. Watching in a trance. The crew is certain. Nothing left to chance. All is working. Trying to relax. Up in the capsule. Sent me up a drink. Jokes, Major Tom. The count goes on. Four, three. absolutely adore this song still to this day if i had a top 10 songs list this would be on it and the thing is it was such a minor hit the radio here would rarely have ever played it i managed to get about half of it taped onto a cassette one night and i couldn't find the record or anything around here couldn't find the 45 the 12 inch single or even the album and I just remember going, who on earth is this guy? Of course, years later, I found out he was from Germany. And this had been a massive German hit earlier in the year, and you know, all that. And for Christmas, my aunt managed to get me a 45 of it. To this day, I still don't know where in the world she purchased it. Probably on a business trip somewhere. But what's your thoughts on this song? I remember listening to this. I had a little transistor radio. And my bedroom was up in the attic. And I remember when this song would come on, you know, my sisters and I would dance around and stuff. You know, any good new wave station would have played this across the course of the 80s, because I feel like it was a, a you know, a love song and sort of a, a, a cult classic there. Mm-hmm. Peter Schilling, as you mentioned, is German. Mm-hmm. And the original version of the single was actually sung in German. Right. Yeah. I had an ex who lived in Germany for a time, and he was obsessed with the German version and trying to find the German single. And I, to, to this day, I don't think he's ever found it, but um, it's kind of, I suppose, a reimagining of David Bowie's space oddity. You're not you the know? first person I've ever heard say that in my life. In fact, I read that today. Yeah. I mean, it's major Tom was a character mm-hmm. in a number of Bowie songs, starting with space oddity, but this seems like it's putting a different spin on the story. And maybe it's a little more hopeful because uh, space oddity, that was 68. Can you hear me, Major Tom? Your circuit's dead. There's something wrong. And it's implied that, you know, he's lost forever. Right. Whereas in Major Tom coming home, it's, you know, I mean, that's the whole thing. Coming home, floating weightless, coming home. Right. So it's maybe a little bit more optimistic than the Bowie version. It all makes sense. And he was for sure influenced by Bowie with this. You know what I wonder is what David Bowie thought of it. Oh, you know, I bet there's got to be an interview out there somewhere where he talked about it. I bet you. I wish I'd have thought to look that up before we got up going, but. Mm-hmm. Well, so there's one other thing that I tend to associate with this. I don't know if you remember, maybe in the late 80s, there were some television commercials for L. Ron Hubbard's book, Dianetics, and they all showed a volcano in the background. Yep. And the music that played in the background sounded so much like the synth intro. 
from Major Tom. Mm-hmm. I do recall that. I do recall those. And there was, wasn't this in a commercial rather recently? It was in an ad for the Lincoln MKZ. What year? Ooh, 2009, maybe? You know, that's oddly about the last year I had cable TV. Okay. So that's inter- interesting there. I was going to say probably a car, but. It's just such a good song, man. I did putting it. That's why I'm so happy tonight, I think, because I've played this song a hundred times today. All right. Well, shall we move on to my first choice? Let's do. Speaking of David Bowie. I, you you <laughs> did this intentionally, didn't you? Uh, uh, let's go with that. Sure. <laughs> it's very clever. I, 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 I was just noticed that, but go ahead. Sorry. That's okay. Let's go with that. I, I don't remember if I planned it that way or not. But yeah, so I chose Modern Love by David Bowie. Let's listen. So Modern Love, first single off of Bowie's album, Let's Dance, which was co-produced by Nile Rodgers, who I just happened to see in concert a few weeks ago. Yeah, there you go. September 19th, the day that we're recording, is Nile Rodgers' 70th birthday. Oh, wow. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Nile. Oh, my gosh. The way the man moves, he does not act 70. I mean, he's still got the dance moves, you know? But anyway, back to Bowie, Modern Love. I kind of went back and forth because Bowie had several singles out Mm -hmm. that year, right? Let's Dance, China Girl, and this one. But I chose Modern Love. It's my favorite of the three. What do you think of this one? I actually like this one. And, you know, it was one of those songs where it it was a hit. I mean, it was everywhere. And this was one of those records that everybody was listening to, Black, White, I, mean, I even knew people that were in the metal that had it. We're talking about how good it was. It's just one of those albums. Oh, wow. This particular song, I know Bowie has said he was inspired by Little Richard. There's definitely a soul kind of vibe to it. The call and response parts in the chorus. Mm-hmm. One of the things I love about David Bowie, and I think this is going to come up over and over again as we do our episodes, is the way that he completely reinvents himself over and over and over again. I think the phase before this was probably the Thin White Duke. Mm-hmm. I'm remembering correctly. But now in this this mode, he's kind of this, you know, groovy kind of soul singer uh, slash, you know, swing dance. I mean, the way he was dressed and everything during this particular era. He was definitely playing along what was popular at the time because it's a good mix of new wave and an R&B sound. And that's that's what was ruling the airwaves right then. So. These people that do this stuff like this, it's amazing to me how they sit back, just kind of observe and they go, here you go. This is what I think of this. And it's just always so good. I don't know if this record in particular is like this, but it used to, you know, I look at, you look at some of these old albums and they go tracks one, three, and four recorded in Milan. Tracks, you know, two, seven, and eight recorded in 
yeah, know, at this point. All of the tracks were recorded at the Power Station studio in New York. Well, that was the studio of that era, the you know, early to mid-80s. And we know someone else who recorded there. We know quite a few, but yeah. I, are you thinking of the power station? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and uh, it, that also makes sense then that Nile Rogers would be a co-producer because yeah. he was very heavily involved with that. He was season. everywhere back then. He was he was you know got himself in there good, didn't he? Absolutely. Okay, so what's next? We have Fields of Fire by Big Country. heard this song before you probably wouldn't unless you own the album or you looked at, i believe it was released as a single in the uk or in ireland someplace like that you know i love that album i love big country you know of course they had such a sad demise there but uh this album was just so good and this song just absolutely rocks without being like metal to me it just has such a thundering booming you know just just sort of chugs along it's one of those, another one of those good mood songs for me. I hear this song and I'm just happy all day. It's really interesting to me the way they kind of emulate the bagpipe sound using guitars. It was an Evo. Oh, was it really? It's a little, uh, I don't know how to explain it. It's a little thing you hold in your hand. Okay. You hold it over your guitar and it makes those noises. And uh, you've heard it more than you realize. A whole lot of bands have used them a lot of times improperly, getting weird sounds out of it. But Now, how are we spelling that Evo? Ebo, exactly how it sounds. E B O W. Okay, I'm gonna go look that up. Yeah. So yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely see some commonality with this song, and then the one that they're really known for. I absolutely love "In a Big Country" because it it's so uplifting. It's so much fun to sing at karaoke. You kind of alluded to the late Stuart Adamson, their singer. Sadly, took his own life. I think it was in 2001. It sounds about right. In Hawaii, after a long, lifelong struggle with alcoholism, which even sadder, I didn't even know about it until about a year later. You know, that was whatever. I think it was, was it before or after 9-11? There was so much going on that year that, you know, music news wasn't really in the forefront of things. And by then they were sadly just forgotten pretty much. That's so, so sad. Hopefully he's, hopefully he's found peace now. You know, if you've never checked out Big Country, you listeners out there, all their albums they did over the course of the 80s are fantastic. So check them out. Great, great band. One more thing worth mentioning is the, I guess, subtitle of this song is 400 Miles. Mm -hmm. It reminds me a lot of the Proclaimers who would come later, another Scottish band, and I would walk 500 miles. So what is this obsession that the Scots have with distances and why are they still using the imperial system and not the metric system? Because <laughs> isn't that the big deal that over there they're like, oh, we've got the metric system? Uh, I don't know. I don't get into that debate. I've, I've seen some <laughs> serious arguments go down over that one. Over. 
all across my adult life. I don't, I don't touch that one. I, I staying out of it, huh? Right. <laughs> yeah, I just thought that was kind of an interesting parallel, and I actually kind of wonder because the Proclaimers came later. I wonder if maybe the Proclaimers might not have been inspired a little bit by Big Country. I would, I, I would think they would have been. I mean, Big Country was they were very successful over in the UK and Europe, much more so than here. So I, I, I don't know. Okay. Well, my next song actually is one of the first 45s I ever bought with my own money, Trey. So what song is that? Burning Down the House by Talking Heads. for a while wasn't it oh you couldn't you know one of those songs you couldn't move five feet without hearing it somewhere yeah so this was actually the talking heads only top 10 single in the usa yeah do you know what inspired the uh the title burning down the house i do not want you fill our listeners in so chris france the drummer and his wife tina waymouth had gone to see parliament funkadelic in concert right george clinton mm-hmm. and I guess Chris France kept yelling between the songs, burn down the house, burn down the house. And uh, so David Byrne kind of picked up on that and changed it up a little bit to burning down the house. It was originally an improvised musical number. You know, uh, Chris and Tina were just kind of jamming out together. And so many, so many good songs start out that way. And, you know, so then David Byrne eventually added some lyrics to it. You know, this is one of those songs where the first time I heard it, I really wasn't sure what to think of it. Yeah. It's such a distinctly different song than anything else that was popular at the time. I, I just kind of had the thought in my head, what is this exactly? Well, the Talking Heads, they're very quirky. Oh, for sure. And I, I had no idea who they were at the time. This was my introduction to them, probably for a lot of people that were my age at the time. Yeah, I think this might be the second song that I heard by them. I remember seeing the video for Once in a Lifetime uh, very early on MTV. So I think this might have actually been the second one that I heard by them. But yeah, I I went out and I bought the 45 with my allowance, uh, along with another one that we're going to listen to shortly. I went and bought a couple 45s and um, loved it. I I mean, I I don't think I understood the lyrics at all, but, you know, I, I just used to play it on my little record player. More recently... Tom Jones and the Cardigans did a cover of this song, which is actually a lot of fun. It really kind of changes the vibe of the song. You know, I mean, it's Tom Jones. It's like over the top. But uh, if you haven't heard that version, you should check it out. It's a lot of fun. I'm going to have to check out. I actually dig the Cardigans, except for that one doggone song that got ran endlessly into the ground. But their other material was actually fantastic. Not what I expected. So uh, why don't you go ahead and tell us your next song? 
My next song is actually a band I spoke about in the first episode, but they're one of my faves, so I, I felt okay with it. But it's One Thing Leads to Another by The Fix. The deception their largest u.s hit well, biggest u.s hit it's it's another song that is so absolutely fantastic and catchy and just so hard driving there that that rhythm in it is just uh it just gets in gets in your head and it stays there for a day or two and you can't get it out and the video was interesting it looks like it was filmed in a subway i don't know yeah, you know, I don't really think I remember the video. I'm going to have to go back and look it up again. I remember some of their videos. You know, I remember Stand or Fall. But I don't think I remember this I've ever even seen that video. With the horse? Right. Oh, okay. Well, maybe we're going to have to have a video watching party one of these days, well, right? That's what I keep saying. So we need to. We need yeah. to do an episode on music video because it just suits everything yeah. we're doing so well. Yeah. So, you know, The Fix, I think, is a really underrated band from the 80s. Oh, criminally, criminally. I, drives me insane. Yeah, I mean, you know, if for some reason they're not really top of mind. You know, whenever you, you talk about iconic 80s new wave bands, for some reason, people forget about The Fix. And they had some really, really good singles. I kind of wonder if the fact that they had a bit of a political slant, maybe counted against him a little bit. Cy Kernan, who's the vocalist, had said that this song, One Thing Leads to Another, was about the fact that politicians just lie to get elected and then forget what they said. It's all bullshit. As a band, we like to remind people of that and to not just lie there like sheep. That probably might be a little, I think the real problem is, is nobody knew what to do with them. Okay. You, 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 there was nowhere to stick them because not only did they have the political slant, but they had such a hard science fiction element and a whole lot of music too. And they were just, hmm. didn't really fit in anywhere else. You know, I don't think they fit on pop radio. They didn't exactly fit with the alternative minded stuff, which I disagree with myself, but there was just nowhere for, you know, they, 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 they didn't have a place. Obviously, this song and Saved by Zero got airplay down here on our Top 40 station. But after that, after that, it was like they never existed. You did mention this was their most successful single in the United States. It reached number four on the Billboard Hot 100. You know, Tina Turner really kind of took a shine to them, too, didn't she? Yeah, she, they sang with her. And, uh, Why can't you be good to me? Right. I think Cy Curran actually did background vocals on several of her songs, didn't he? That's possible. On the Private Dancer album. Ooh, I'm going to have to look that up now. Anything else about The Fix? Other than this, this is just a truly fantastic song. One of my, again, it's a, you know, desert island thing, I guess you could say. Okay. All right. Well, my next choice was another one of the 45s that I bought with my own money back in 1983. And that is Synchronicity 2 by The Police. 
fantastic track and a fantastic album. You know, this is another one where I played it a lot on my little record player. And I don't think I really got the underlying meaning. I mean, it's got some very, for a police song anyway, got some very kind of apocalyptic tones to it. Some very hard edge guitar. That whole album does really. King of Pain. I mean, there's some, you know, that album is, it's out there. Well, there's a reason that, you know, that album was so popular. It was on like every album chart in 83. I mean, Every Breath You Take, wasn't that the number one song that year? See, I was going to say, I actually did not care for that song much. I, I liked The Police already, Ghost from the Machine. I love that song came out. Mm-hmm. It got ran into the ground. Yeah. Somebody gave me a copy of this album. that, that I guess it was Christmas of 83. And I played it and I was like, this, oh my God, this Despite that song, this album is unbelievable. You know, I found it kind of hit and miss. There were some songs I really like and some songs that are kind of eh, but I suppose that that's going to be true of most albums. You know, now that I've gotten older and I've really listened to the lyrics, I mean, obviously the title refers to Carl Jung, right? He Mm -hmm. wrote a lot about synchronicity. And Sting has said, Jung believed there was a large pattern to life, that it wasn't just chaos. Our song Synchronicity 2 is about two parallel events that aren't connected logically or causally, but symbolically. And the two events, well, one of them, you know, you have this kind of mundane suburban family morning and, you know, family eating breakfast and everybody's unhappy and, you know, caught in traffic. And then I guess the event that it's uh, uh, connected to synchronously is the Loch Ness Monster of all things, right? Many miles away, something crawls to the surface of a dark Scottish loch. And I, you know, I was big into all that stuff back then. Still am somewhat. It's just something I enjoy reading about. It's like really good science fiction to me, but I I just thought that was the coolest thing ever the first time I heard that. So you're into cryptozoology? I like reading about it. I don't know how much of it I actually believe, but it's definitely an interesting subject. This may very well be the only song that I have ever heard that references the Loch Ness Monster. So it gets mm-hmm. bonus points for that. That can't be. We're going to have to look into that later. Okay. All right. We'll come back on that one. Okay. Or uh, if uh, our listeners can think of any other songs about the Loch Ness Monster, please email acpodcast at hotmail.com. I'm dying to hear the answer to that one, to be honest with you. So. <laughs> All right, so we're going to shift gears a little bit from the Loch Ness Monster to Borderline by Madonna. surprised to see this on your list Trey I would not have had you pegged to be a Madonna fan you've seen me you've seen my Facebook music tears and seen me go on an 80s Madonna one there's not a guy on this planet 
We won't haul their butt onto the dance floor if a guy bust out some old Madonna. And that does happen. Okay. So get into the groove, something like that comes on. It's just insanity in there. I'm telling you. You know, interesting, interesting little thing about this is my girl, often owned girlfriend in Detroit, went to the same high school as Madonna, Rochester Hills High School, Ooh. Rochester, Michigan. Not at the same time, obviously, but. And Madonna has close ties to that area still, from what I hear. So when I was living there, I could have been within 50 feet of Madonna and had no idea. Yeah, wow. <laughs> I, I I can't top that. I mean, the I... Whole, you know, the whole time I was there, I wonder, I Madonna, does she have a house here, an apartment, or, you know, her, most of her family's still living and in that area. I was going to say, because isn't Madonna over in the UK now? I, I believe so. I don't know. I don't really keep up with her anymore. I, okay. You know, she, she just appears here and there. She'll be in the news. I just don't, you know. Yeah. Does she even have any new music out recently? That's a good question. I don't know. Yeah, I was one of the original Madonna wannabes back in the day, okay? I mean, oh, I, I still I still have the black rubber O-ring bracelets. I Those do. were my favorite girls back then. <laughs> <laughs> the Duran Duran chicks. And they were both... The Duran Duran chicks were kind of doing the Madonna thing. So it was a win-win for me. And that's probably more why I got into Madonna. Yeah. You know, this was this is a great song. And I first saw it on of all places, Night Flight, and just I dug it and I got the I got the 12 inch, you know, it had a remix and all that on. I just loved it. Yeah. Well, so for me, as a uh young Italian American girl growing up, you know, seeing Madonna was very empowering for me. I mean, you know, here was this woman and and you know, her songs were very different and the way she dressed were very different than you know what we expected from most female artists at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, she didn't take any crap from anybody. She had her idea for how she was going to present herself. And even this video for Borderline. I seem to remember it was a bit controversial because uh, it depicts her in a relationship with a Latino gentleman, at, at least part of the video, right? Yeah, and that was, she, you know, you didn't do that back then. No, no. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was unheard of. So, I mean, it was really, like I said, I think for me, it, Madonna was very empowering. I think she was a very, very good positive influence on me although you know i don't know if my my parents would necessarily agree with that but we'll see have you seen by the way trey the movie madonna in the breakfast club i have not oh you might enjoy that so it's it's a pseudo documentary so parts of it are presented as a documentary with interviews but then parts of it are like a biopic reenactments and I think it suffers a little bit because of that, because it can't decide what it wants to be. But it depicts her very early days in New York, because, you know, she was with, was it Dan Gilroy of The Breakfast Club? And she was originally the drummer for that band. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I knew that. And, and it goes into, you know, their relationship and her musical career, and then how she kind of went off on her own away from the Gilroys. And uh, it, it's actually, it's pretty well done. It, it's... It could have been better, but the acting was great. The the gal that's playing Madonna, spot on. It you know it's 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 really kind of interesting the way they interspersed that with like interviews of the Gilroy brothers and stuff. Their lone hit was actually a very good song. Yes, now you're thinking of Right on Track. Right. And yes, and I actually I love that album. I love that song. 
but the video did not do them any favors with the dancing chicken women. I don't remember it. Yeah. What was that? A summer of 87, wasn't it? I just remember they kept getting hyped because Madonna was in this band. And, mm-hmm. you know, that seemed to be their selling point. And that's obviously maybe something we could discuss in 87 as well when we. Uh, yeah, for sure. When we get to that. Why weren't the Breakfast Club bigger than they were? I just want to say one last thing here about Madonna. This is just, this is kind of a little funny story. I was at a party once in the mid nineties. There's a bunch of punk rockers there. And somehow I think somebody put on a Madonna song and this guy just started carrying on about it. And this chick just looked at him and went, Madonna's punker than you are. And the guy kind of looked at her all shocked. And she goes, she does whatever she wants. And if you say something about it, she'll tell you to kiss her ass. Everyone was like, you know what? You're actually very right. So love it. Love it. I can I can see that in my head happening still. You know, one of those moments. Cool. All right. What's next? Oh, it's mine. It's one of mine. (laughs) This was another one that was everywhere in 1983. Mm -hmm. She's a beauty by the tubes. fantastic feel-good song it's definitely the most commercial of the tubes songs and uh they're most commercially successful right so do you know anything about the tubes trey very little surprisingly enough very little i've had more than a few people look at me strange over the years when i've said that they're just a band whose catalog i've never explored much well so it's really kind of interesting they really kind of were known in the mid seventies as part of like the underground comedy scene. Right. You know, the, the same scene that brought us like the groundlings and mm-hmm. a number of other uh, comedy troops, because they're more of a performance art act. Right. I mean, they're, they're a band, but their act was really based very much on visuals. They had themes that were inspired by the San Francisco post hippie underground culture Mm-hmm. Uh, like they did a song called Streaker's Ball. Mondo Bondage was another one that they were known for. And their live performances were really over the top. And some people would argue maybe even a little bit tasteless. They went all out, though. And I- I've heard them compared to like Andy Kaufman with that kind of. Are they serious or not type of. Yes. Yes. Where it's like, are these guys being serious? Right. And yeah, things like uh, there would be. Uh, a couple planted in the, the front row and Fee Waybill would be in costume and he'd come out and he'd start like a fist fight with the couple. And then, you know, really kind of pushing the gauntlet, I think of what music and what a musical performance could be, but very visual. Sometimes they had acrobats and tap dancers in their show. Most of their budget was going to costumes, believe it or not. Right. So it's really kind of interesting if you follow their career trajectory, 
this is kind of, I mean, this is the last song that they were known for. It's also, I think, their best known song. It's definitely a lot more pop than a lot of their earlier stuff. Oh, for sure. If you watch the video, though, there's still some of these things. Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a very, very interesting video. If you actually sit down and pay attention to it. Yeah. So, and then there's some of the same themes that they had in their stage show where they're kind of, you know, maybe pushing the boundaries of taste a little bit. So in the video, there's a young man who was played by. Alexis Arquette. Yes, Alexis Arquette, who was a sibling to Rosanna and Patricia and David Arquette, right? That's very famous acting family. Rosanna was also known in 80s music herself. Oh, yeah, because uh, Desperately Seeking Susan, Madonna. The Toto song. Yeah. It was written about Rosanna Arquette. You didn't know that? I did, yes. Hey. And and the other song that was written about her. I don't know that one, do I? What song is that? In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel. Oh, I really? Yeah. So, yeah, Rosanna Arquette has had a number of uh, pop songs written about her. She's, She's a very attractive woman, and she's very pretty. Well, you know, the, the whole Arquette family, I think, is ridiculously good looking and ridiculously talented. So Alexis, you and I had actually been chatting about this. So she had passed away a few years ago. Uh, she was trans. I got a friend request from her one night on Facebook, I think in like 20, 2012. And I didn't really realize who it was at first. And I just accepted it. And so then I was Facebook friends with her and hmm. watched her death. Oh, gee, not, not watched it literally. Right. Yeah. Not not actually saw it. But I just kind of, you know, saw the day of and the aftermath. And I was I have no idea why she sent me a friend. I, I feel like she thought I was somebody else, maybe. I don't know. Who knows? All right. Well, so she was very much known for activism for the trans community. Right. And she unfortunately did die of complications related to HIV. Right. Yeah. I didn't realize she's actually in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. She was in a bunch of movies before she transitioned and after, of course. Mm -hmm. One of those bit actors, I guess you could say, that was kind of all over the place, really. Yeah, definitely a, a, a tragedy of, of her death. Um, right. You know, definitely Sad taken to too soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, other than that, though, the video itself, yeah, very, very interesting. And the song... The video and the song, I think, go together really well because we have Fee Waybill as kind of like the carnival barker, you mm -hmm. know, step right up and don't be shy. But the lyrics are about a nudie booth, right? You know, that yeah. she's right here behind the glass and, you know, trying to get people to spend their money. I mean, it could have been very tasteless, but I think they did it in a way that was tasteful. You know, where the boy is going through life, I guess, and all these, you know, different women. There's a mermaid, you know, there's a, an acrobat, a few other women. And it's by the end of the video, the boy is is an old man and the cycle still continuing. You know, it's like, I guess all through life, there's there's going to be women, you know, that you're going to be attracted to that you can't have. All you got to do is talk to them. All right. It works. All right. Well, there you go, guys. Dating advice from Trey. There you go. All right. Anything else that you want to throw in for uh, the tubes? You know, somebody said to me once, they said, you know, the tubes are almost they're almost a more mainstream, accessible version of the residence. Now, I'm not familiar with the residence. I, 
they're one of the most unique bands in the history of music. You'll just have to check them out on your own. They're, okay. It's hard to even call them music at times. They are, they're something else. Now, I've heard the tubes compared a lot to Frank Zappa. I can see that one too. And the residents certainly that get that conspiracy. Same with the residences until rather recently, no one knew who exactly who they were. Hmm. And one of them passed away, but there were different people involved over the years. And there's a lot of people that suspect that Frank Zappa and members of the tubes were at times involved with them, but we'll probably never know for sure. They wore costumes and everything. They, they're weird. Okay, I'll have to definitely check that out. Yeah. Last thing worth noting, you remember in episode one, we talked about Martha Davis from the motels being mm-hmm. in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, one of the three most important people in the world. Which I clearly had never noticed, like a moron. Well, Fee Waybill of the Tubes was also one of the three. I don't believe I knew that either. Yeah. Okay, so now we're going to start to get a little goth here with the next yes. few selections. So what's next? She's in Parties by Bauhaus, which this would actually be one of the first songs I ever heard by him because I saw the video on Night Flight one night in 1986 and ran out and got what I could find by him. But more on that in a second. Let's hear a bit of the song. Sometime in 86, I was watching Night Flight, like I did over the whole course of the 80s, but uh, they played the She's and Parties video. And Again, this is something I really had no idea what to think of it when I saw it. I'd only recently gotten into The Cure and been delving into this type of stuff, but still, still hadn't really caught on that a lot of these bands had this little thing there in common. You know, it wasn't that that light wasn't going off in my head yet. I was already into seizing the banshees by this time. And but this just, you know, it was intriguing for sure. I was gonna say, I, I don't really remember this song. Uh, you know, obviously Bella Lugosi's dead is the big one that, that <laughs> everybody knows. But yeah, you know, when I heard it, I'm like, okay, that sounds vaguely familiar. You know, I used to do a lot of the goth clubs and stuff when I was older, so I, I do know that I've heard it. Well, I was going to say, you know, this is definitely what was one of their singles. And this is for sure what you would call one of their fan faves, I guess you could say. And, you know, like a, with a lot of Bauhaus's music, I have no idea what on earth they're talking about. I'm not sure anyone does. It's, it's worth noting that apparently Bauhaus has just canceled their tour and has apparently broken up again within the past two weeks. Um, yeah, I heard about that. Does anybody really surprise? Apparently, Peter Murphy is a bit of a jerk because this isn't the first time this has happened to the man. And he, he's got some struggles with drugs, which I think has plagued him his whole life. I hope the man gets some help. And it's sad to see such a great band come to such a, yet again, such a cliche demise. Yeah. 
Well, okay. So let me, let me tell you my, my weird moment here. Um, you're familiar with the term, the Mandela effect. Oh, of course. Okay. So for our listeners, the Mandela effect, it refers to something that collectively people remember happening one way, but it actually happened another way. And the, the name of it refers to Nelson Mandela, who was obviously uh, in prison in South Africa for many years, and he was freed. But some people seem to remember him dying in prison. Oh, I've, I've seen some near fights go down over that one, but go mm-hmm. ahead. Well, so my Mandela effect moment, I swear that I thought Peter Murphy had died in a motorcycle accident in it would have been about 2010 or thereabouts. I am so certain that I remember hearing about it. I even remember talking to one of my goth friends about it. He was in a car accident around that time. Yeah. Arrested for meth possession and a DUI. I believe that was in Los Angeles. So I don't know. It's more very likely that I'm misremembering it. Or maybe I'm from an alternate timeline where Peter Murphy actually did die. And somehow I slipped into this one. That's my story, and I'm going with it. <laughs> I'd like a glimpse into that world. That's that, that's intriguing. Yeah. If you if if you notice, it's hard for me to admit that I am not a goth. Yeah. But I tend to shy from the term. I'll only use it on like my Facebook account jokingly because goths, well, they're goths, and they can be pretentious and annoying and. So listeners, uh, right now, as I'm looking at Trey, he's wearing all black. His hair is is dyed black. But he's not a goth. <laughs> I never cared for the label thing. I don't know. Yeah, not, that's, not fair. Me. that's fair. I, I did go through a goth phase and I've always liked black clothing, even, you know, even when I was listening to music that was not goth. So moving on to the next song, which is Let's Go to Bed by The Cure. I know a little about them. Well, so I picked this one because this would have been the first song that I ever heard by them. I remember seeing the video on MTV with Robert Smith and Lal Tolhurst. As I got older and listened to it, I really started to appreciate the lyrics. Some of the imagery in these lyrics is just beautiful. Mm -hmm. Let me take your hand. I'm shaking like milk. Yep. It's very unexpected, but... It, it really, it, it paints a picture. And especially, you know, milk, you're thinking pale, white, cold, you know, mm-hmm. which, you know, kind of is fitting with the image that Robert Smith was portraying at the time. He hadn't gone too wild with it yet as of this point. But yeah, he was, he definitely was, he was headed in that direction for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what they were going for with this. I think they were trying to have some mainstream success. 
Never really heard him talk much about this there, but I, I believe a record label was involved with this because it was very different than anything they had done before. And they, they have yet to really, they've, been, they've gotten poppy again since, but this was just blatant. Mm-hmm. And they were for sure playing on the new wave thing that was big at the time. But the cool thing about it, like we just said about Madonna and Bowie, Robert just kind of kind of did it in his own Robert Smith way. and was like, here you go. And, you know, I don't think a lot of people realize it. Technically speaking, the cure really didn't exist at this point in time. They had broken up after the pornography tour and kind of came back and churned out a single. And I mean, it was it was just Robert and Lal at this point. There's a there's a long had debate on if Lal actually even performed on any of this. Really? It's largely. Yeah, this was probably 100 percent Robert and a drum machine and, a you know, that, that's a long debate between Cure fans, and no one really knows the answer but Robert Law, and they aren't aren't saying much about it. Have you read Cured, the Tale of Two Imaginary Boys? I haven't, and I haven't sat down and read it. And my again, my longtime opening girlfriend gave it to me at Christmas of 2016 on my first visit to Detroit, and I, I still haven't sat down and read the damn thing. Uh oh, are you? And you're admitting to that on the podcast? She's going to she hear knows. that. She's like, you jerk, but <laughs> it's backed away in a box right now to do the to move back here due to the pandemic and all. But I need to do that because there probably is some insight in there that I'm, mm-hmm. I'm missing. It's worth reading. And they really do kind of talk about this period of time with the band. So like I say, I haven't read the book. Some people even question what Law said about certain errors of the band in that book. So I don't know. I, I, that's a debate I don't get into online with all the little cure heads because they can get pretty vicious about it. And I'm like, guys, come on. You know, who cares? But we all know Law had to eventually leave the band due to his drinking problems, and they didn't speak for years. So. Yeah, there was some bad blood there. Right. Some, but they're all, they've kissed and made up, and they're buddies again, and they speak. And he even performed with them again in 2011. That's cool. So, you know, there you go. This is not one of my favorite eras of the band by any stretch of the imagination. I still to this day don't know what to think of these songs. This song or the other songs that were on this, I guess it's an EP. I don't know how they, what they call that one, but I I know Robert doesn't consider it an album. So you've gone and got me started talking about The Cure, so. <laughs> well, then let's change the subject because it's going to kill the rest of the episode. Oh, well, you you picked a, a related band for your next song. I did indeed. And uh, it's uh, Susie and the Banshees with their cover of Dear Prudence. So I don't know this one as well as I know some of their later stuff, but uh, why did you choose this one? Really? I chose this one because it features Robert Smith. Okay. 
he's in the video if you get on youtube and watch it I, I i thought it was a fantastic i'm not real big on cover songs and i've always felt like this is one of the best covers ever done this, this whole album hyena is kind of a, got a almost a psychedelic goth thing going on and i just thought it was fantastic the first time i heard it and uh so you mentioned robert smith played guitar for the banshees at one point yes he, he did he had the cure, I think they were opening for Susie and the Banshees, and several members of the Banshees quit the band abruptly a couple, two or three, four dates into the tour. And so Robert stepped up and joined the Banshees. Robert was really unhappy at this point in time and uh, was talking about disbanding the cure, which in, in, they kind of were disbanded for a while there. And he just wanted to be a guitar player and, you know, not be the leader of a band anymore. I don't know what all was going on. There's a whole lot out there about that. And he, obviously he hasn't spoken much about it himself other than saying he was indeed unhappy and, you know, just wasn't happy with anything at that period in time. You know, they also did a, a album called Blue Sunshine under the name of the glove in this era, which was basically Steve Severin and Robert. Ooh, I didn't know that. You didn't know this? No. You need to go after the show and get on YouTube and listen to it. It's completely not what you were expecting it to be. It's, it's, I don't even know where to begin explaining that album. Dark pop. Okay. It's got a woman singing on it who is not Susie, though she does sound like her. Apparently it's some girl, I think her name is Alice. It's just some girl they... I think it was a friend of somebody's and they said, hey, you sing. So she did. I can't believe you don't know that. I can't believe. No, I've never heard of that. Wow. You need to listen to that. It's okay. Interesting. It's dark, poppy, simple. They used real simple keyboards and stuff. I almost sound, at points, it sounds like this little cheap Casio things you could get in like drugstores back then. They had the little tiny keys. It's, it's, a, it's a trip. Yeah. How have you not heard of that? I don't know. I don't know. And hey, speaking of Susie, so she has a new compilation album coming out next month. I forget what, what the ad says, her, her darkest moments or something along that line. So I guess they're trying to promote it to the goth crowd. And, you know, October being, you know, spooky season <laughs> and everything, right? Totally. I, I get, I, and people like me, for sure, wants to still buy records with you too. But, you know, so I guess they're trying to drum up some, I don't know, back catalog sales there. Maybe it's a good thing they're trying to get her name back out there. I, I know this will never happen, but maybe they'll reunite do a last tour. Oh, that would be cool because I've never seen them. That's not going to happen. No. Well, she and Budgie had a bitter divorce, so they're it's not going to happen. All right. And I think I heard that she's like living in the south of France or something? Yeah, she's apparently taken off into the south of France and has her a, a villa and she's got several pet cats and she just keeps to herself. And Boy, that's the dream that I aspire to. Want to retire to the south of France with a couple cats? I guess she just wants to be an old lady. And, you know, I don't blame her. Yeah, good I, for I her. I want that too. She's earned it, you know? A picture surfaced of her last year in London with, I think it was Neil Tennant of the Pet Shop Boys. Ooh. Someone else in there. She still got her hair dyed black and looked amazing. I believe she's, what, 64, 65 now. You know, if she asked me out on a date, I would definitely go. 
And, oh, hey, speaking of uh, new albums, were you telling me that The Cure might be coming out with a new album, too? The rumors are going around that they have an album coming out on October 1st. And they, they are starting a world tour on October 6th, somewhere in Europe. I forget the first date. I believe it's in Finland. Oh, wow. But something is going on in Cure land. And more likely than not, they're touring America next spring. I, I would say it's going to start in May and run through June. And they're going then after that, they'll do all the European summer festivals. So if you're into the Cure, you're going to have a good year. I finally saw them live several years ago. They played Riot Fest, and oh, you were at that! Oh my God, it was wow. it was it was so beautiful. It was amazing, and and you know, Robert Smith is known for encores that go on for an hour, hour and a half. Yeah. So it was like the, the show that never ended, but I mean, it was just so beautiful. And when they started playing pictures of you, I literally got tears in my eyes. It was so beautiful. That is one of their best songs. And it is also one of their best live songs. And it's also a song they themselves love. And they just hearing that vibe is phenomenal. Yeah. They were, they were so amazing live. I saw them in 2016 in Charlotte, North Carolina. And for like the fourth time in history at that show, they opened with pictures of you. Yeah. The whole place went freaking nuts. And my dad had just died about three weeks prior to this. Mm -hmm. So it hit me in the feels pretty hard. There's actually footage of that on YouTube. All right. So switching gears a little bit now, we're kind of going from the, the uh, goth dark wave side of things to... Uh, urban hip-hop my next song was electric kingdom by twilight 22 put this in our list i didn't recognize it and I, I was gonna kind of save it as something special for the show and i pulled it up on youtube this evening and played it and i was like oh i know this song yeah it's an 80 skating rink song you've, you've all heard it whether you oh yeah know it or not you'll you know this one might kind of be the odd one out in my list so i kind of feel like i need to explain a little bit so my best friend in this time was a dancer and she was primarily ballet but she also took jazz dance which really was any kind of urban contemporary was called jazz dance. And so she was always, she was always bringing home, you know, like cassette tapes of hip hop. And for me, a white kid in the suburbs, you know, I had not had any exposure to this. So this really was very unique. And I remember listening to this song in particular in her backyard and we were just kind of dancing and stuff and coming up with our own choreo, you know, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't learn until today that Twilight 22, Gordon Bahari, is actually white. I would have never guessed that in a million years. Gordon Bahari, I guess, he's a pretty well-known synthesizer player. He's worked with Stevie Wonder. He's worked with Herbie Hancock. Ramsey Lewis, who unfortunately just passed away uh, not too long ago, 
who was an amazing jazz musician. So I guess because there were so few white people doing hip hop, urban dance in the 80s, the record label insisted that he had to take on a pseudonym. That's a story for the ages right there. You guys need to be more white or, or, you know, record labels meddling in things. So. Well, and, you know, it's, it's maybe a little strange to think about in 2022, but radio in the early to mid 80s was very, very segregated. Oh, yeah. MTV was. David Bowie has a famous comment about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, the only black musicians that you'd ever see would be Michael Jackson and maybe Prince. You know, these guys that were in the synthesizers back then were buying all this stuff. You know, this, this R&B, urban dance type of stuff, and the other bands we've been talking about, all the new wave acts, they were all buying all of this music, so mm-hmm. they certainly weren't concerned about it. There was a, an interview that Gordon Bahari gave about Electric Kingdom, and he said, I took the most seemingly opposite elements, my father's Middle Eastern record collection and a hip-hop dance beat and combined them. You know, these bands had a lot in common with industrial music at the time because of the heavy use of synthesizers, drum machines, and just doing stuff. And sampling. Right. That nobody, they were using these things in ways they weren't meant to be used. And they were, all of them were breaking new ground with it. It's all good music. Yeah. So, yeah, that's an interesting observation because I think a lot of times we tend to think of these two genres of music as being completely unrelated. But there really was some inspiration and crossover, I think, between uh, like the hip hop scene and. I was, I was going to say, I, I'm friends with Kevin Key of Skinny Puppy on uh, Facebook, and I've seen him mention stuff like this more than a few times. It's, you know, records he was buying back in the, you know, back in the day. So a lot of those guys, a lot of these industrial guys are into this stuff for sure. It wouldn't surprise me to hear that at some point back then, a few of these people crossed paths and even traded gear info and secrets with each other. You know, how did you do this? You know, that type of thing. How did you get that sound out of that scent? So it's it's, like I just said, it's all fantastic music. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Shall we move on? Yes, let's go. Up next, we have (laughs) Revenge by Ministry. off of their album with sympathy and yes this is the same ministry that would go on to do jesus built my hot rod nwo right a number of like they're, they're really known for very hard industrial rock they weren't always and their antics supposedly al jorgensen the lead singer of ministry has kind of disowned this album although it seems like maybe recently he started to kind of warm up to it again he has I've seen people who were apparently around in the era of the recording this album that have a different take on the matter. So, you know, who knows? Whether it was his choice or whether it was the record label? 
apparently Al, this is what he was wanting to do. So I can see that. I love ministry. I love Al, but I can totally see that because he's he's shifted gears several times in his life to kind of be current, which it, it isn't a bad thing. I can't envision anybody telling him what to do. Exactly. That's another thing that I somebody pointed out. You know, you seriously believe somebody sat Al down and said, you're going to do this? You know, yeah. Pretty good point. But for me, my intro to this album was in, this album was a stalwart of early to mid 80s bargain bins and record stores. And it was in one of those, you know, Arista cassettes with the red back shell on it, you know. Mm-hmm. And it, I'd gotten into the Cure and Bauhaus and the Banshees. And the cover art's very appealing to someone that's in that sort of music. So I, I finally broke down one day and purchased it. It's got the, you know, the gothy girl hand with the roses and all on it. It's, and the black nail polish. Right. One day I, I broke down and bought the tape. I think I paid two ninety nine or even $1.99 for it. I took it home, played it, and I loved it. I think I found this album, I, it was a little bit after like Every Day is Halloween mm-hmm. had come out. And so I kind of was going back a little bit into their catalog. We used to, uh, obviously not in 83 because I was too young, but uh, in my teens. You were right around this stuff. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, in my teens, because I grew up in, in a suburb of Chicago and we used to take the train into the city and we'd make a day of it. And our big three destinations would be Wax Tracks Records, The Alley, and The 99th Floor, which I believe was also owned by either Al Jorgensen or somebody affiliated with Wax Tracks. So yeah, Wax Tracks was, it was a, a record label. They did have recording studios, but they also had a really big record store. Were they in the same place? The studio and the store? Or? You know, I don't know. I don't know if they were in the same location or not. You know, this store was in Pretty in Pink. Was it really? Yeah, that's the store that uh, Molly Ringwald worked in. Oh, she worked at, at Wax Tracks? Well, they didn't call it Wax Tracks in a movie, but that's where they filmed it. You know, I'm going to have to go back and I have to look at it again. Because I know, yeah, John Hughes is uh, from the Chicago area, so. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? What? When I first caught one to this place, I just pictured it as a type of, like, there was a German guy working in it named Pink. <laughs> but a rubber outfit on and a nail on his nose. And, you know, wearing a front 242 t-shirt. Right. That's how I, I envisioned it. I, I don't remember. I don't remember ever seeing anybody quite looking like that. Right. Um, that was also the place you'd go to buy the manic panic hair yeah. dye and all the different colors. So I seem to remember, you know, every time I went, there was somebody with a different color, like there was flamingo pink. There was a guy that had like the bright chartreuse green hair. But it was it was really a destination and it was the place to go where you couldn't get records that like stuff that wasn't sold at like Musicland or your local crappy, you know, chain store. Yeah, I had to drive to other cities to mm-hmm. do that, like a mm-hmm. two hour drive. And this for us was about a 90 minute train ride. So, yeah. Right. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. So um, but I mean, it was totally worth it. And I remember getting a few ministry albums that way. And that was kind of how I had, you know, first, first heard them was actually, you know, at wax tracks. There's, there's this uh, um, documentary film that I haven't seen it yet. It's called In- industrial accident. It's about wax tracks records. Yep. I almost rented it. Watched it. Yeah. I think it was Friday night. It's on YouTube. You can rent it and watch it. It's on my watch list. I definitely want to sit down and watch it one of these days, but I know that there's a petition online. They want some kind of plaque commemorating where wax tracks used to be 
it's a dentist's office now. That whole neighborhood is completely gentrified. Apparently, I was mistaken. I'm in a wax tracks group on Facebook. I, I, I mistook something I saw there today, but I, I, I got the impression the store was still open. And I think it's the one that's in Denver, Colorado, that is actually still functioning. Me and my uh, goth and punk friends in the late mid, mid to late 80s, we hung out in a mall food court. That's all we had. That's all we had. We did our share of that too, believe me. I know you. that's a cliche, but that's literally all we had. And they would kick us out. And that's, that's just... Well, the mall was where you would go to be seen. That was the center of, of the social life. I mean, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. What they're depicting about that the mall being like the center of social activity for the teens, that's very accurate. We actually, a good many of us actually all ended up working at the various fast food places in the mall food court. You kept coming enough, so they said, here, well, get a job. Then they couldn't bother us to kick, kick us out anymore. But I, the real reason behind us, we were actually good kids. And we would show up to work on time and do what we were supposed to do and not come to work, you know, high or drunk. And, you know, so they kind of became a thing, really. I was going to say, you just looked like you were trouble, right? Exactly. It just goes to show you that, you know, how, how society perceives people like us, especially back then. You know, on the subject of that, about how society perceives people, let's talk about my next song. Here Comes the Rain Again by Eurythmics. Another truly, truly talented and unique man of the 80s. Absolutely. And so influential, both Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart, right? Annie Lennox went on to have a big solo career. Dave Stewart became a music producer. He's worked with so many different bands. I mean, he even produced Tom Petty at one point. And of course, Dave Stewart at one time was married to Siobhan Fahey of Bananarama. Apparently, they got divorced, right? Yeah, they did in like ninety six. <laughs> I mean, who? How lucky do you have to be to marry a chick from Banana Rama? I don't know. That's that's really cool in my book. And they were all very pretty girls. Okay, I'll, I'll agree with you there. <laughs> but you know, the one that I just found so ridiculously attractive was uh, Annie Lennox. That was like my first time seeing. Well, okay, maybe second time because Grace Jones as well. Grace Jones and Annie Lennox both kind of had this androgynous look about them, this almost kind of non-binary look about them. And I just thought that they were both so incredibly beautiful. I totally forgot about Grace Jones and all this we've been discussing over the past few weeks. She, she needs to come up at some point in our show. Oh yeah. And I believe me, she will. But Annie Lennox, especially, I mean, just the way she presented herself with this gorgeous, short red hair, Yes. And and, you know, she would wear like men's clothing, you know, like a, a, a men's suit and tie. And oh, my gosh, I, I just thought she was so incredibly beautiful. And 
I, it showed me, I think, that you did not have to present as the traditional idea of feminine to be attractive, that you didn't have to have low cut dresses and, and cleavage out to here and, and you know, the, the traditional idea of femininity. Nobody would dare to say Annie Lennox is not feminine. She was definitely going against what you would have thought of as of a woman involved in music in that era. She, I, I think she definitely thought that out. Yeah. And, and really kind of flying in the face of what were considered gender norms. And I love her for it. She influenced me a lot. She influenced my, my sense of style. Now that I'm sitting here looking at you, I can totally see that and feel stupid for never noticing it. Oh, oh. <laughs> Trey, that is so incredibly sweet. And I am so flattered. I am so flattered that you would mention me in the same breath as Annie Lennox. Well, you know, that it kind of got a thing going there for girls with short hair because Jane Wheedlin of the Go-Go's had some short hair there. And so, yeah, that kind of got a little thing going there. Okay. In the park, cut her hair short. Remember that? Yeah. They weren't quite going for the full gender bender thing going on like Annie was, but it was definitely a thing there. Yeah. So, so I'm flattered. So thank you for that. You're very welcome. And God, she's just got the most incredible voice. She Mm -hmm. has this incredible vocal range. I mean, uh, the high notes that she can hit are just like, they could shatter glass. Uh, I think she was sampled. um, There was a Utah Saints song that sampled her voice from the the one must've been an angel playing with my heart. You know, that song. And oh my gosh, just, she has such a distinctive voice. I, I, I don't even know how to explain it. Her voice is just amazing. She's just so, so incredible. And uh, I think it's a crime that Eurythmics have not been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, they, they for sure need to be there. Day's yeah. musicianship is just unbelievable. His production skills and... Oh, everything. he's a mad genius. He's an absolute mad genius. He's one of those people you can totally see. He's very intelligent. They, they were an incredible partnership, but they also, you know, have had amazing careers away from the Eurythmics. Yeah, so. She had a few solo hits. And she she did the theme song to the 92 remake of Dracula. The Francis Ford Coppola? <laughs> yeah, I have some strong feelings about that movie, but okay, this isn't so, the time nor the place for all that. Uh, so I'm sorry, Trey, you say you're not goth. Only a goth would remember Love Song to a Vampire by Annie Lennox. I'm sorry, dude. If the shoe fits, you got to wear it. I was into universal horror before any of this stuff. So that, that's my, okay. my story. I got into that stuff when I was like five. But you, yeah. Okay, good save. Good save. <laughs> hey, um, what's your next song? Our next song is going to be Everything Counts by Depeche Mode, which is a Got some airplay for them, I think, in the U.S. And it, it's a fan fave, and it's you know, it's it's a classic.
played at every concert they've done ever since. Yeah, I've seen this perform live. And Depeche Mode is one of the few bands that I think sounds as good live as they do in the recording. And that's not an easy feat. Totally. Well, I mean, it was probably easy because they were pretty much solely electronic at this point. But, you know, it's such a great every show I've seen by them, which is seven or eight. Mm -hmm. They've played this song. So if you listen to the the lyrics, this is really kind of an interesting narrative. And if you think about the greed is good 80s, right, everything was about materialism. And this song really kind of frames that differently. You know, the grabbing hands grab all they can. And they're talking about the handshake seals the contract. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's um, really kind of an indictment, I think, of that kind of materialistic culture. Yeah, I always got the impression they were talking about the recording industry. It's very likely. It's very likely. Well, they were on Sire Records at the time. I don't know. Who knows? We can probably find the answer out there somewhere. But this, you know, this got re-released in 89 to promote the 101 tour documentary and concert film, which I actually like that live version better than the single single mix of the song. Oh, we've got to mention Andrew Fletcher's sad passing away back there at the beginning of the summer. It's, uh, it shocked me when I I couldn't believe it. I, hard to talk about it. That was so sudden and out of nowhere. It's like, what the heck? How did he pass away? Apparently he had been playing soccer the day before or something along that lines and got hit in the head went home and went to sleep and never woke up again. Oh, wow. So it was a, a brain injury of some sort, huh? I would think so. I don't, I don't know if they, I haven't gone and looked. I don't know if they've come out with more about it or if their family's just chosen to keep it private. Right. Man, stuff like that though. I mean, gosh, you know, everybody out there listening, if you take a blow to the head, please, please get checked out. Don't think I'm just going to go to sleep and it'll be okay. Cause isn't that how Bob Saget died too? I believe so. Yes. Yeah. You know, head injuries are nothing to mess around with. I think that's what killed Steve Vader's as well. Oh, it might be. It he might got hit be. by a car. And pretty sure he went back to his hotel room and laid down and went to sleep, never woke up again. But should also say one last thing here is, some rumors going around that either this weekend or into the next week, the Pesh Mode is going to hold a press conference and announce that they're going to release the album they were working on and they are going to tour behind it. So you think this might be the farewell tour for them? I, it's hard to say. They seem pretty, pretty upset. I mean, this is a lifelong friend of theirs and they, they seemed very upset about it. I, it's hard to say. I kind of leaning towards, yeah, but, I mean, mm-hmm. they are a machine. And oh, they are. They are. Out of all these bands that we're talking about from the 80s, it, it blows my mind that they now they are the biggest one left. I mean, they fill huge arenas overseas. Yeah, I don't. And here, too. And he, I don't think any of us had any inkling back in 83 that Depeche Mode was going to blow up as big as they did. I only realized that back around 2009 how huge they still were. I was like, what are you yeah. kidding? They're playing 90,000 seat soccer arenas over in Germany and Europe. And I was just like, holy, what in the world? Yeah. Depeche now, Mode. Most of their later music, I think, was a lot more sensual. You know, I, obviously you couldn't say that about everything counts, but uh, it's still There's definitely some sexiness going on in their music for sure. Yeah. yeah. 
a lot of the ladies seem to have noticed that over the years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I always seem to end up at the concert next to the ladies that are all flashing Dave Gahan taking their tops off. So did that happen at the Duran Duran show? No, it didn't. I guess they've all got too old for that. I don't know. I don't know. But apparently, apparently the Depeche Mode fans, they're not too old for that. So, you know, the Duran Duran show I saw in 84, where the, that was the first time I saw boobs that run on TV, get printed on paper. So, <laughs> all right. That for what it is, Audie. All right. all right. So let's move on. All right. <laughs> so uh, the next song on the list is Icicle Works. Birds Fly, Whisper to a Scream. This is a band I didn't become aware of until the earliest 90s. They're they're a one-hit wonder, I guess, at least here in the United States. They're a British act, obviously. And, and here in the U.S., they were signed to Arista Records. But Arista insisted they make some changes before they'd release the single. So one of the changes, apparently, there was some kind of spoken word at the beginning of the song. Arista said, cut that out. They also reversed the song title so on the single in america it was actually whisper to a scream and then in parentheses birds fly so it was the opposite third they insisted that the band drop the from their band title so they were known as the icicle works but now they're just icicle works and apparently they're named after like a 1960s book of some sort works better without the d on it than me it it flows better I think it does too, but I'm wondering too if that's just because it's what we're used to. But anyway, so this song, uh, it did reach number 37 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart. Somebody, and I'm afraid I don't remember who, but somebody re-recorded this because it was on the soundtrack for the original Scream movie. I was going to say, didn't somebody have a minorish hit with the cover of one of their songs there in the British 90s? You know, I'm going to look up who that artist was. So it was 96. Soho is the name of the band. The same band that did Hippie Chick. Oh, they did, didn't they? Yeah. That sampled the Smiths. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did they even do a cover of a, a Smith song eventually? I don't know much about them. I just know that song Hippie Chick, which is a minor hit there, I think, in 91. I, I like that song. That was a good one. No Hippie Chick. Mm-hmm. That's all I remember about that and the, the Smith sample, obviously. I didn't know of these guys in the 80s and sometime probably 90 or 91. I was at a party one night and talking with someone about all this type of music. And they just were like, you've never heard of the Icicle Works? Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, who are they? And they ran out of their car and get me a tape and you've got to listen to this. And I did. And they're a pretty cool band. You know, this one, I think the thing that stands out for me is the drums. It's got like a very kind of almost tribal drumming sound. And this is one of my go-to songs for karaoke. When I'm singing karaoke, I do this song a lot. So good song. 
That song, we have a song by one of my all-time favorite bands, New Order, and the song is Age of Consent. bigger hit in 1983 with Blue Monday, but I'm going to be honest with you, I cannot stand that song anymore. Just because it's overplayed or what? Exactly. You bring up New Order and someone throws that on and you're like, please, really? And it's a good song, but I'm just, you know, you, you love these bands, you listen to them your whole life, and you're going to get sick of some of their stuff. Okay. For me, that, that, that Blue Monday is that song by New Order for me. And I chose this song because this, this, again, is one of my all-time favorite songs. It's a it's a good song. It's catchy. I really like uh, Peter Hook's bass line on this. Oh, and Peter Hook is probably the best bass player on the entire planet. Just gets such little credit for it. Yeah. It's, you know, this this album is such a fantastic album, too. Um, that name just dropped that completely out of my head. Brotherhood. Brotherhood. I was going to say Power Corrupt. No, it's Power Corruption of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. First track of Power Corruption of Lies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Brotherhood came out in 86, silly. Oh, sorry. You know your new order facts? What's wrong with you? Yeah, okay. Anyways, um, <laughs> it's another song I'm really not sure what on God's Green Earth he's singing about, which is New Order is another one of those bands where you're just kind of like, what on earth are they? What is this about, really? But I think the lyrics have a dark tone to them. But it's just such a happy song for me. Just remember hearing it for the first time and thinking, wow, this is great. So I do know that New Order was very much of the habit of just kind of randomly picking names for songs that would sometimes be book titles where they might not have anything to do with the song itself. And I suspect that might be the case here. I think that they, they pulled the, the title somewhere and just threw it on the song and bam, there you go. It's entirely possible. And New Order has always enjoyed keeping an air of mystery about themselves, I guess you could say. They don't really say much about why they were doing what they were doing. Or, mm -hmm. you know, we were talking about that urban dance music earlier. And they're another band that say they were heavily influenced by this stuff and were buying those records at this point in time. And I mean, you can't tell that from Age of Consent, but some of their other songs on that album, yeah, you can definitely feel the influence there. You know, and that's something I was going to say. Age of Consent is not something you would consider as a as a good example of New Order's true sound. It's, it's sort of off the beaten path for them. There's still, I think, some uh, echoes of Joy Division in there. Oh, for sure. As a matter of fact, you know what I found out recently I didn't know? The band said uh, there was like a Twitter listening party about two years ago. And they said that the drums recorded for this song were actually recycled from Martin Hannett's version of Love Will Tear Us Apart. That doesn't surprise me. That's right when samplers were first coming out. I'm sure they got one and that they were probably up all night playing with it. Look what we can do, you know. Yeah. But uh, no, New Order, uh, another band that like 
really uh, pivotal part of my formative years, I think. And they're touring again this month They're with, with the Pet Shop Boys. Yes. I had tickets and I sold them. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, I would have seen them in Detroit back and this got pushed from 2020. Yeah. So I would have seen them summer of 2020. But I'm looking forward to seeing the Pet Shop Boys, too. I don't like everything they've ever done, mm-hmm. but they are a great band. And the stuff I like by them, I love it to death. The last time I saw New Order, they played a few years ago at the Aragon Ballroom. Were they boring? No, not at all. They were great. <laughs> but man, there was some drunk guy that was hanging out in front of the Aragon. And he was just pissing me off so much. He kept saying, New Order's got a whole new sound, man. New Order's got a whole new sound. And he thought he was like being really, really witty and stuff. And it was the same shit they always play. Shut up. There's a long running joke among New Order fans that they aren't the most dynamic live band on the mm-hmm. planet. I'd but heard that before. They sound fantastic, but they just look bored with what they're doing. Maybe that's part of their their gimmick who knows well i remember hearing that because uh they were touring in like the late 80s and i'd wanted to go see them and a friend talked me out of it that's when i saw them he said i've heard that they just plug in their instruments and they stand around they were not like that at all when i saw them i mean they've never been like real big you know dancing around or anything but it, it was a fantastic show i was not disappointed I saw them with the sugar cubes opening for them in summer of 89 at six Atlanta. And the sugar cubes were horrible. Really? Yes. They they're kind of an acquired taste. I don't have I like I I love their first album, Life's Too Good. That's gonna Mm -hmm. come up when we get to 88 or 87 rather, but that that is a fantastic album. But not so good live, huh? I don't know what they were doing. They 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 didn't play any of their better known songs. They were, hmm. but, but let me, I was going to go on to say in their defense, this was in Georgia at Six Flags, an amusement park for those of you overseas and such, you don't know. Georgia, and this was in late June, and it was ungodly, unbelievably stinking, filthy hot outside. It was over. So I think maybe these people from where they're from Iceland, right? Mm-hmm. Were just completely taken back by the heat. I remember when New Order came out and started after they played about five songs. Bernard Sumner finally went. How do you people live like this? This I, I this is I, I, I can't stand this anymore. Yeah, yeah. you know well, he's not wrong. And this was at nine thirty at night, which was oh, probably, so would have cooled down a little bit. Well, by it was then. still probably ninety five freaking degrees outside. Wow, it'll be ninety two degrees here in the summer, two in the morning. Wow. People ask me, why did you want to get out of Georgia so bad? And you went somewhere like Detroit. You know, besides from meeting a woman there, I can't stand the heat anymore. It's, yeah. it's going to be the death of me. Okay. It is. Shall we move up? Let's go. Okay. So uh, you and I, Trey, picked you- <laughs> what? I was going to say to the audience, you knew this band was coming. There's probably not going to be an episode without these guys in some form or another. Yes. So uh, Trey and I both picked songs by Duran Duran. I picked Is There Something I Should Know, which was their first big single in 83. Let's listen. There's a dream that's the road with broken glass for us to hold. And I've got so far. 
right. So that one, um, they were building on the momentum. Right. I was about to say, was this done to to keep the cycle that going that they you know had going there with Rio? Yes, that's exactly what it was. So this was released after Rio as a standalone single. But then what they did is uh, to try to capitalize on the band's popularity, mm-hmm. they re-released in the United States the band's first album, which was just called Duran Duran. But they changed the track order and they added, is there something I should know? Right. And that's the one that I had. I had the re-released version that had, is there something I should know? It had a different cover. I like the cover of the re-release better. But this was a hugely popular song when it came out. Still, oh, yeah. still, uh, right. still great. So the song they removed from the album was To the Shore. Mm-hmm. I actually had never heard To the Shore until maybe five or six years ago. And I feel kind of ripped off. I, I actually, <laughs> it, it's, uh, there's something about that song to the shore when I'm listening to it on my headphones and Simon gets to the part where he says, open up and breathe. And then he lets out this long sigh and it's just like, Oh, it's so, so arousing. (laughs) So maybe it's a good thing that I didn't hear it in 83, but anyway. And see, when I, I saw this album, it confused me. Okay. I already own the original version of the White Album, which came up and actually has come up in two of our episodes. But uh, so this confused me because when I saw it in the store, I was like, what on earth? This is a different artwork, Uh new song, but all these other songs are on that other album. I had no idea what was going on. Yeah. I still brought it, but. Well, and and so, you know, as we, I think we kind of mentioned when we talked about the Rio episode is that was such a big hit that I think it inspired people to go back and look at the back catalog. And that's a a very common phenomenon. So the record label decided to capitalize on that. Mm -hmm. And nine-year-old Lori went out and bought it. Also, at this point in time, I would go out and assume they were working on Seven and the Ragged Tiger. Mm-hmm. which would come out later on in 83, which we'll get to with our next song, actually. But, I, you know, they were trying to keep that momentum going for sure. Just have something out there, keep them, keep them being talked about, give them TV and the show something to play. And they never didn't skip a beat with all that, really. Yeah, they kept going. And that's really, I think, what the music industry kind of needed at that point. You needed to stay in the public's eye because if you didn't, they would have moved on to something else, right? I think that's probably true, but boy, did Duran Duran get big in the before. Mm. Wow. They, yeah, they, they blew up in a way that I don't think anybody predicted. I, I didn't expect that at all. I was already seeing the Duran Duran's girls popping up at school and such, but boy, little did I know. You know, I think that that was our generation's Beatles you know, you see all these, the, the footage of women and like the... Didn't John get himself in a bit of trouble for saying that at some point in there? John Taylor. Oh, maybe he did. I don't know. He but... made a comment somewhere in there that they were bigger than the Beatles. And of course, those Beatles guys lambasted them for the fans. I hadn't heard that. Remember the, Ro- I think the Rolling Stone interview there in 84 or something was said about them being the mm-hmm. 80s Beatles and further infuriated people. 
Well, I mean, that's kind of what I imagine what it might have been like living through Beatlemania. I mean, you see the footage from the, the shows, you see the girls screaming and fainting, and you see that there's, there's some footage where the guys are in their limo, and there's so many people outside that they're rocking the limo, and you see Roger Taylor just like, he's so upset, he looks like he's going to cry, you know, and just the kind of reaction that, you know, that they got, particularly from female audiences, was just... um I, I hadn't seen anything like it in my lifetime, you know. Well, I had seen it with Kiss, sort of. Okay. You know, I was big into Kiss there in the 70s as a little boy, which I think most males that were of a certain age that were into them, I can't stand them now. But Really? You know, y'all get, oof, get me started. All right, all right. <laughs> like we were saying, I had, you know, I loved this band. I, I didn't, again, I didn't really know what alternative music was, but in my head, that was kind of what I, this was a special band. They'd gotten some airplay, yes, but they were a unique band, and I didn't see them turn it into what they became. You, did, you didn't see that coming? Oh, who, who could have? I don't think they even saw it. Like, no, I don't think they did either. I mean, even though they had this kind of manifesto right. where they said, you know, we're going to play Madison Square Garden in five years and all that, and they did. They did, yeah. A couple of nights, too, didn't they? Yeah. What uh, what Duran Duran song did you pick, Trey, from 83? I picked Union of the Snake. which was released that fall. And I, you know, back then, I, I don't want to say here, we didn't, Lori probably knew about it. She had MTV. Yes. I had no idea this was coming out. So one morning on the way to school on the bus, our bus driver would play the local top 40 station. And the DJ was like, here's Duran Duran with their new song, Union of the Snake and played it. And I was just like, oh my, you know, <laughs> oh my God. It was, if I remember correctly, MTV would do world premiere videos. And so this was very heavily promoted. I remember sitting glued to my screen, waiting for it to come on. The video is bizarre. It's very... What what Duran Duran video isn't bizarre? Well, some are more bizarre (laughs) than others. You know, we've got some kind of weird desert creature. There's an elevator in the middle of the desert. You know, there's kind of a little bit of a, an adventure Indiana Jones-ish vibe to it, but also, you know, there's Nick with some kind of secret treasure map where he, he exclaims, I found it. And, you know, I still want to know what was on the scroll that Nick found. That was actually the manual to one of his synthesizers. (laughs) There you go. There's like a half naked snake lady or something in there too, in there. Yes. And um, there's a cameo appearance by a very young Jennifer Connelly. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. She, she's one of the kids in the video. She actually, she uh, had cameos in two videos from the Seven and the Ragged Tiger album. Really? Uh, the other one was the Seventh Stranger. There's a video for Seventh Stranger? It's taken from the arena performance. Oh, oh, oh. Mm-hmm. Okay, I am aware of that. You had me thinking like, wow. Mm-hmm. 
idea. That, that's a great song. You know, this is another song. What in the hell were they? What is it about? What, what is going on here? Well, you know, have you read there, there's a Duran Duran book? It's called The Book of Words. I've never actually seen it. You've talked about it. I, I think I might have thumbed through it in a store once. I've got it here on the bookshelf behind me somewhere, but it, it says in the book of words that the borderline might be one between the conscious and the subconscious minds. But then later on in some interviews, uh, Simon LeBon has actually said that it was a reference to tantric sex. Okay. <laughs> which, which, you know, maybe it is, maybe it, it's Simon putting us on. I don't know, but I do remember right around the time that View to a Kill came out. So it was after this album. I do remember on Good Morning America, I remember they were interviewing the band and the gentleman who hosted the show, his name was Hartman. I can't remember. Was it David Hartman? I don't remember. But he asked the band something to the effect of, you know, unlike a lot of other bands, your bands, your songs really aren't about sex, you know, blah, 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 blah. And just the look on the guy's faces when he said that, because it's like, you Have just you actually that- listen to any of our music. Exactly. Exactly. Who are you? Yeah. You know, incidentally, Roger Taylor has said that the beat and drum track for this song were based on David Bowie's single Let's Dance, which was also Mm. from 83. Mm. Interesting little factoid there. Yeah, little little tidbit. This, you know, it's a fantastic song and it comes over so well live, especially on the 84 tour, which we'll get into that, what, two, three episodes down the down the way we we might need to do a duran duran and 84 85 episode okay i'm down with that so much so much goes on in 84 and 85 and in the 86 with these guys we might as well just compile it into all under one show okay i think our listeners would enjoy that too cool is there anything else you want to talk about with union of the snake i think i was about to ramble again like i've been doing um you know it's I love it. It's one of my favorite songs by them to this day. That keyboard riff mm-hmm. opening is just so cool. It's great, great song. We'll talk more about Seven and the Ragged Tiger here very, very soon because I have a lot to say about that album. Okay. Laurie does too. We probably do an hour, two hours on that album. And probably, yeah. And then, you know, we mentioned earlier today, uh, Nile Rogers and how he had produced. Uh, co-produced Bowie's work in 83. Well, he also produced one of the big singles off of Seven and the Ragged Tiger. So that's the beginning, I think, of his working relationship with Duran Duran, which has continued to this day. And this song, where did it, how, did, how far did it go in the U.S. charts? Do you know off the top of your head? Union of the Snake? It was a pretty good hit. It was getting played down here. U.S. Billboard chart number three. Yeah, wow. According to Cashbox, which was another U.S. chart, mm-hmm. number one. Some of our younger listeners probably won't know this, but before an album come out, they would release a promotional single upwards of a month before the album. And the 12-inch and the 45 of the song would be available, but you couldn't get the whole album yet. Yeah. I remember rushing right out and buying the 45 and the 12-inch of this song and just desperately waiting for the whole album to come out. I bought the album. I did not buy the singles, but uh, I was getting anything I could get my hands on. This was my absolute favorite band at this point in time. Yeah. You ready to move on to the final song? Or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So my last song was Overkill, 
by Men at Work. Great song. Very, very sad song. Think about the implications of diving into deep and possibly the complications, especially at night. I worry over situations. I know we'll be all right. Perhaps it's just an imagination. Day after day, it reappears. And night after night, my heartbeat shows the fear. Ghosts appear and fade away. You know, of all of the songs from 83, this is the one that I think most resonates with me on a personal level. You know, the lyrics, I can't get to sleep. I think about situations where well, it's that like, nice with me now. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think about situations I know will be all right, but you know, he, he's, he's staying up and, and getting himself worked up. Ghosts appear and fade away. So he's being haunted by something. Colin Hay, who was the lead singer of men at work actually said that, this was the first song that I wrote where I thought that maybe I could actually make a living as a songwriter, perhaps. He really has evolved from the land down under and who can it be now? You know, this this is a very moving, very touching, as you said, very sad song. I only rather recently learned that he had gone on to have an even bigger career as a solo artist. Well, I know in Australia, he was yeah. pretty big. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No idea. This song actually, I think, peaked at number three on the Billboard chart. And I obviously was a fan of there. We probably should have put one of their songs in the first episode. Men at Work? Yeah. Business as Usual was a fantastic record. And I had, I believe I got that for Christmas of 82 as well. And this, one, this came out, was it spring of that year? But I remember desperately wanting to get this album. And my yeah. parents didn't want me to get it because it got terrible reviews. I think their first album, I think there might have been a perception that they were almost a novelty band. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. And the, the second album, I think they really started to take themselves seriously as musicians. There's other songs on this album, too, that I think, um, what's the other one? Um, mistake. It's a mistake. Yeah. Which is you know, another really, really beautifully written song. And I think maybe fans weren't expecting that. They weren't expecting, you know, these goofy Aussies that were, you know, singing about the man from Brussels who's six foot four and full of muscles, right? I don't think that they were expecting that this band had a serious side. And I think maybe that's why it was getting panned the way it did. I like this album. It's called Cargo, by the way, for our listeners out there. I like it. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was, a, I still think it's a fantastic, I actually like it better than business as usual. I can't tell you the last time I've sat down and listened to business as usual. It's probably been since the early 80s, but when they reissued, I think it was in 2006, mm-hmm. and they reissued their two albums, I got this one, but didn't buy business as usual. So... I like it. It's a great album. It is. It's an underrated album. It seems to be largely forgotten, too. I guess that brings us to an end for 1983. So thank you again for listening to the Accelerated Culture Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed our time travel back to 1983. 
we have something special planned for you in two weeks. Now we're not going to say just what. <laughs> you got to tune in. I just want to say again, thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone that's been listening to this and supporting us. And hey, give us some likes and comments on our Facebook page. I would love to hear what some of you guys have to say about the show and what you're thinking and even just your memories of some of this music. Yeah. So we're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Find us on social media. Give us a like and uh, throw us some comments. We'd appreciate it. Good night, guys. Bye.